Open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. If you have one of our uh, black Bibles at the, uh, the, from the welcome table or the bookshelf over here, it's on page 46. We're going to finish up the chapter and the book today, okay? The chapter and the book. We've been in Genesis for just uh, right at about a year now with a few things in between. And um, we're going to finish up these, these last 12 verses, chapter, uh, verses 15 through 26, will take us to the end. Now, we've made it to the end of the beginning, right? Genesis, the word means beginnings. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I threw out the question, what has God taught you through the book of Genesis? And again, that's not, that's not um, I want you to hear that question. That's not what has Eric taught you through the book of Genesis. That's what has God revealed to you by his spirit, through his word, alongside one another as his church. And the responses that I've been getting have been a great encouragement to my heart. Overwhelmingly, uh, I would say the top three things that I've seen in, in these responses was this deeper awareness of and this deeper confidence in God's faithfulness, his love, and his plan of redemption. Seeing this, that the Old Testament is not a disconnect from the New Testament, that it actually prepares us for Christ. And the New Testament looks back on the Old Testament and says, yeah, that's him. Everything that they said points to him. It's Jesus. And so it's been really encouraging to me to see uh, that the Lord has been making those connections for, for each of you. And, and we will see these things, God's faithfulness, his love, and his plan. We will see these once again in the last 12 verses of Genesis 50 as we close out this book. And so I want to pray and ask the Lord to, to uh, prepare our time and our hearts together. And then we'll dig into the, to the passage. Father, open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. Help us to understand it so that we can obey it, that we can obey you, not to gain or earn, but simply to rejoice in you because you've given us everything in Christ, including Christ himself. Father, lead us to him this morning through your word and by your spirit so that you'd be glorified here in your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever uh, made plans only to have them changed by someone or something, maybe even at the last minute? Um, I mean, I did this week, right? We were going to have the exploring membership class, but then nothing came of that. So it actually worked out. Uh, we were able to do some things at our house this weekend I was, I was really excited about. Um, God has never had that problem. You know that? Like, have you thought about that? God has never had that problem, not even one time where he's made plans and someone or something else has changed them. Let's pray. We could end right there, right? I mean, that thought right there is something enough for us to just meditate on for the rest of our lives, let alone the rest of this morning. But we have more to go, and so I want to encourage us this morning this final story in Genesis, we're going to be reminded that there really is nothing and no one that can change God's plans, and that is incredibly good news for us. Here's, here's, our, here's our final main idea, okay, from these last few passages, or uh, last few verses in Genesis. Here it is. From the very beginning, what humanity planned for evil, God planned for good 
to bring out the present result, the salvation of many people. From the very beginning, what humanity planned for evil, God planned for good to bring out the present result, the salvation of many people. Let's look at verse 15. Chapter 50 of Genesis. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, If Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. Now, for Joseph's brothers, grief over their father's death, which we saw last week, Jacob's last words, his blessing to his sons, and then he, he drew his feet into the, into the bed and he took his last breath and he died, right? Grief over their father's death has given way to fear once they realize that Jacob was no longer around to, to sort of act as this buffer between them and, and Joseph, their brother. And now they lived in Egypt, right? They're, they're not in their homeland. They're in this foreign land. Jo, jo, Joseph uh, brought them there. But Joseph is the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, and in their minds, this is a no-win situation. The word suffering here in, in this verse, uh, in, in verse 15, is translated from the Hebrew word that means evil. Evil. From the suffering we caused him, from the evil we caused him, he's going to repay us for this. What was that evil? Do you remember? They committed a great evil against him. They betrayed him so many years ago, and they, they sold him into slavery. And now that Joseph had all the power, they were afraid. I think I would be too. They were afraid of payback. There's something in us that understands that when we, when we do something wrong, we deserve to be punished for it, right? It's the sense that, that justice is, is necessary in order uh, to right a wrong, in order to restore good in, in place of evil. This is a good gift that God has wired into the consciences of all human beings. And unless our, our consciences are, are hardened or calloused, we can relate to what the brothers are feeling in this moment, right? Like, oh man, we did some bad stuff. What's he going to do? We can all think of some kind of suffering, some kind of evil to some varying degree that we've caused someone else, and we can all understand, if we're honest about it, that we deserve to be punished for that thing that we did, right? We deserve justice for what we've done. We all call for it in, when we see it in others. But if we're honest, we would admit that we need it ourselves as well. Joseph's brothers seem to be forgetting a couple important things here, though. Their uncle Esau once held a grudge against his brother Jacob, their father, right? And Esau had determined in his heart to, to kill Jacob as an act of retribution, to repay him for what he had done. What did he do? He stole the blessing from, Jacob, uh, from Esau. But when Jacob and Esau finally reunited many years later, Esau, what did he do? He ran to him, wholeheartedly forgave Jacob. They reconciled with one another. They, they embraced. They wept together. And Jacob's sons had witnessed this. Remember, he lined up his children and sent them on ahead to Esau to kind of try to buffer between them. They witnessed this reconciliation. You'd think that they, they would have seen how God worked in that situation and, and been hopeful that God would help them or, or help Joseph show them the same kind of, uh, of kindness that Esau had ended up showing to Jacob. But they were also forgetting that, jo that Joseph actually did, right? 
He had already forgiven them. He had already shown them this kindness back in chapter 45. Before Jacob even came to Egypt, before the father even came to be between them as the buffer, what did Joseph do? He embraced his brothers. He wept with them. He he, he reconciled with them. He forgave them. Genesis 45, 5 through 8. Joseph told them, and now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in this land for these two years and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He's made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph had forgiven them because he had become convinced of what? God's faithfulness, God's love, and God's greater plan. Joseph's brothers had failed to recognize those things, and they failed to remember the extent of Joseph's forgiveness, and as a result, they were overwhelmed with guilt, and that guilt led them to fear. Fear of what? Retaliation, retribution, repayment. Don't we do the same thing with Jesus? Do you ever wonder why guilt and shame tend to linger in your life, even as a believer? When we fail to recognize God's faithfulness or God's love or God's greater plan, when we fail to remember the extent, the, the extent how far Christ's forgiveness goes into our lives, it's easy to feel overwhelmed with guilt and to fear punishment for something that he's already forgiven us for, already forgiven us for. We forget that the suffering that we caused him, the evil that we caused him was the retribution for us, was the retribution for our evil. He was brought to justice for what we have done. He died on the cross and took the punishment for our sins in our place. God repaid his own son, Jesus Christ, instead of us, and Christ's sacrifice covers all of our sins, past, present, and future. That's the extent. Jesus righted our wrongs. He restored good in place of our evil. See, there's no retribution left for us. If you're a follower of Christ, you need to hear this and be reminded of this over and over and over. There's no retribution. There's no condemnation. There is no punishment. There is no wrath left for you. It's gone. Go read Romans 5. Go read Romans 8. It's gone. It was poured out in fullness on Jesus. If there is any retribution left for us as believers, then Christ's sacrifice would not be sufficient to reconcile us to God. We would need something more. But praise God that it was enough, right? It was enough. Christ's resurrection from the dead proved that the Father was pleased with the Son's sacrifice and accepted it as the full and final payment for the, uh, our debt of sin. We've been reconciled to God through Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. We've been reconciled 
That means things brought back to the way they once were, like before the, 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 the bad stuff happened. We've been reconciled. Reconciled to the one and only one whose wrath that we should fear apart from Christ. And we've been reconciled through Christ. And that means that we, we no longer need to fear his retribution, his wrath, his repayment. It's been fully exhausted on Jesus. But that reality, we need to understand this. That reality is only true for those who put their trust in Christ. Only true for those who put their trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Only true for those who, who understand their need to be reconciled to God. They're, they're, understand that, that we have committed evil against the creator of the universe. That we have done wrong against him and we cannot repay that wrong ourselves. You see, it's true that as Christians we waver in our faith. We, we've, we've seen that in Genesis, Right? God's, God's people that he has brought to himself, they believe, but they also waver. You need to understand, we need to understand there's a difference between weak faith in Christ and no faith in Christ. If you have no reliance upon Jesus, then you have no forgiveness in Jesus. And it would be right for you to fear God's retribution for your evil because God never leaves sin unpunished. Romans 3 tells us this. He actually put it on Christ for all of those who have been made uh, uh, new and set free from it. Sin was still punished. Our sin was still punished. Jesus took it. God punished it. Otherwise, he would not be just. But Romans 3 tells us Christ is the proof that God is both just and the justifier. The one who punishes sin and sets sinners free. Praise God for Jesus. Right? So if you're without Christ, yes, fear is the appropriate response for you, but that fear is designed to lead you to faith in Christ because God provided the way. We just sang about that this morning. He provided the way, made the way for us to be rescued from his retribution through his son, Jesus Christ. God's retribution, his righteous judgment and wrath is his good response to what is evil. It's a good response. It's a necessary response. But by his grace, his forgiveness is also his good response. Why? Because God, while God never rewards sin, he, he does redeem sinners. We've seen that all throughout Genesis. That's what's happening, right? Maybe you wrestle with believing that God would even want to forgive you instead of punishing you. Maybe you're just like, how? I'm so far under in my sin that there's no way God could pull me up. Maybe you want forgiveness, but you feel like Christ won't even give you the time of day. I think God has shown us in Genesis that he's faithful to forgive. He's faithful to come to us. He's faithful to all of his promises, and what he promises to us in the Gospel of John is that he will not turn away anyone who comes to him. What an amazing promise. Why would you want to turn that down? There is no sin too deep, too powerful, 
Yeah, overwhelming for you, but not for him. He can bring you to himself. Why not then? Turn from that sin. Acknowledge your need for Jesus. Ask him for forgiveness. Trust in him. And trade retribution for redemption. Joseph's brothers were so riddled with guilt that they were afraid to talk to him face to face. They sent a message ahead. They wanted to make sure that he knew that they were genuinely remorseful for what they had done. Look at verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Notice how they said your father. It's all of theirs, but they're like, you know, want to make sure that he's, he's a, a, you know, honor your father kind of thing. Your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin. The suffering they caused you, again, suffering, evil. Therefore, please forgive the the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. Now, there's no recording in Scripture of Jacob giving this command to his sons. We can't go back in Genesis and find this anywhere. But that doesn't mean that they were being manipulative here in order to try to coax Joseph into forgiving them. We've seen throughout Genesis that not every detail is given to us. We're only given what we need to know to carry the the story along, right? Last week we saw from the blessing that Jacob gave to Joseph that Jacob most likely knew what his sons had done to their brother. And so it wouldn't be unreasonable for him to, or for us to think that, that he gave them these instructions before he died. And we've already seen the genuine remorse from the brothers for their wrongdoing and genuine forgiveness from Joseph back in chapters 44 and 45, even though they forgot about that here, doesn't mean that they're, again, trying to be manipulative. They genuinely want to be forgiven. And verse 17 records for the seventh and final time in this, in the Joseph narrative that he wept. And just like all the other six times, it was an expression of deep love and compassion toward his family. There's no reason for us to assume that deception is taking place here, but genuine repentance and genuine forgiveness. And that's made even more evident in his response to his brothers in these next few verses. Look at verse 18. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And and he comforted them. And he spoke kindly to them. Joseph's brothers finally came to, to him. They once again fulfilled the dream that he had back in chapter 37 of them bowing down before him. This time they said, well, you're slaves. They, they, they offered their own punishment, right? But God gave Joseph that dream because God had a plan, and Joseph's confidence in that plan directed his response to his brothers. Notice what he said at the beginning and the end of his response. Don't be afraid. How would our relationships change if, if we leaned into one another in conflict and we started with that? hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This is going to be a hard conversation, but don't be afraid. Joseph said, my brothers, what you fear, you don't need to fear. You fear retribution, 
you're not going to get it. Joseph helped him understand why. He, he wasn't actually the one with all the power, right? Yeah, he's number two in Egypt, but there's someone far greater than even number one in Egypt. He said, am I in the place of God? In verse, ni- in, uh, verse 19, and at the end of Joseph's life, we, we, we get something that we heard similar to the beginning of Joseph's life when, when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him and get him into sin. What did he say? How could I do such an evil thing and sin against my God? Am I in the place of God? There's a greater plan here. There's a greater uh, 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 power here. What a rhetorical question. If anyone could take God's place, then God would no longer be God, right? But by posing that question, Joseph was essentially saying, listen, the power is not mine. What you think I have, I don't. It's God's. The wisdom is not mine. It's God's. The control is not mine. It's God's. The judgment is not mine. It's God's. The purpose is not mine. It's God's. Listen, my life is not mine. It's God's. It's God's. And then in verse 20, Joseph said one of the most important things in the entire book of Genesis. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. In other words, hey, the plan isn't mine. It's God's. No one but God can take what is evil and bring good out of it. What Joseph's brothers had done to him was not separate from what God was doing. Yes, it was different, but it was not separate. It's against God and Joseph. It was evil, but it was ultimately part of God's good plan of redemption because no one is in the place of God and no plan is in the place of God's plan. No one is in the place of God and no plan is in the place of God's plan. In the immediate context, God used the brothers' betrayal of Joseph in order to bring them all to Egypt, raise, or bring Joseph to Egypt, raise him up into the ranks so that he was in position to then bring them to Egypt and keep them alive during this seven-year massive severe famine. For the original audience of Genesis, that, that, that wilderness generation who was getting ready to, to go into the promised land who, who, uh, for whom the, the whole and first five books of the Bible were written, God used their slavery in Egypt to bring about a great deliverance through Moses and in the Exodus in order to rescue his people and bring them into the promised land. He took something evil and he made it good. He worked, he worked good out of it. But all of those things themselves were, were part of a greater plan to bring about the greatest good from the greatest evil. The Apostle Peter used wording similar to Joseph's here when he spoke to, the, uh, to his fellow Israelites at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Verses 23 and 24, Acts chapter 2. Peter says, though he was delivered up, he being Jesus, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and to kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. What you planned for evil, God planned for good to bring about the present thing, the salvation of many lives. Go down a little further, Acts 2, 36 through 39. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the one that the whole of all of our scriptures have been pointing to. 
When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all, all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. You know what Peter was saying in all of this? What you planned for evil, God planned for good to bring about the present result, the salvation of many lives, greater good than the survival of a severe famine, greater good than deliverance from slavery to a foreign nation is the greatest good of eternal life out of spiritual famine and deliverance from slavery to sin and Satan and death. And that greatest good was actually accomplished through the greatest evil of all time, greater evil than the rebellion in the Garden of Eden, greater evil than the betrayal of Joseph by his brothers, The greatest evil came when rebellious Jews and Gentiles, representation of all of humanity, betrayed and murdered the God of life by crucifying him on the cross. But no one is in the place of God, and no plan is in the place of God's plan. And God proved that by raising Jesus from the dead and seating him at his right hand on the throne of heaven and earth. And for those of us who have been delivered from slavery to sin and Satan and death and have received eternal life in Christ, God continues to use the bad things in our lives for our good. It's amazing. What does he do with them? He makes us more like Jesus as we rely on his spirit and trust in his love and faithfulness. Listen to the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 8, 28 through 30. We know that all things work together. We know, we know, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. If you go to Romans 5, 1 through 5, he says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith... We have peace with God. No more wrath. No more retribution. No more punishment. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions, in our sufferings, in the evils that we face because we know that affliction produces perseverance. Uh, endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit he's given to us. God's faithfulness, God's love, God's plan. Now, there are times when I'm as convinced of these truths as Joseph and as uh, uh, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul were, but there are other times when I'm tempted to put myself in the place of God and rely on my own power, my own wisdom, my own control, my my own judgment, my own purpose, because those moments, what am I doing? I'm viewing my life as my own, right? But it's in those moments that I, I need to remember that God in his grace took the evil that I had planned took the evil that I had planned and he worked it for my good through Jesus Christ. I want you to hear this. 
it will be difficult for you and me to believe that God has a good plan for the evil that others do to us unless we remain humbly aware that he has a good plan for the evil that we've done to him. We just won't get it otherwise. We just won't get it otherwise. Our compassion toward others is fully dependent upon our understanding of God's compassion toward us. Is there anyone in your life that you want nothing more than to repay them for what they've done to you? Do you daydream about it? It can be easy to disguise the desire for vengeance as a, dis- a desire for justice. But for us, those two things are not the same. They're not the same. The desire for justice is a desire to right a wrong and restore good from evil. The desire for vengeance is a desire to answer wrong with wrong. It's a desire to return evil for evil. Only the Lord's vengeance and justice are good because only the Lord's vengeance and justice are the same thing. And we know from Psalm 119, uh, 65, 60 something in there, Lord, you are good and you do what is good. Teach us your statutes. Only God's vengeance and justice are the same and only God's vengeance and justice are good. The way to tell whether your desire really is for justice or it is for vengeance is to answer this question. Are you ready? Are you willing to forgive the person who's caused you so much suffering? Are you willing to forgive the person who has done evil to you? God calls us to seek justice, to love mercy as we walk humbly with him, to uphold the necessary consequences of sin, to seek justice while maintaining a willingness to forgive. That's exactly what God did for us at the cross of Christ. You see, forgiveness and accountability are not mutually exclusive things. Sin has consequences. Christ can take our wrath from God away. But sometimes there's consequences in our relationship with one another that will be hard to reconcile because of the severity of the sin. We don't trade one for the other. Vengeance has no love for mercy and no willingness to forgive, and it's rooted in the forgetfulness that you yourself have been mercifully forgiven even though you deserve to be repaid for what you've done. I've been guilty of this. It's, it, it's, it's tempting. It's tempting to think that holding a grudge against the person who wrongs you, who has wronged you, gives you the power over them. It's tempting to think that. But in reality, when your life is consumed with bitterness toward that person, you've actually bound yourself to their sovereign control over your life rather than God's. And you need to remember there is no one who can take the place of God. And there is no plan that takes the place of God's plan. What if, 
What if God in his grace and his mercy has planned good for that person out of the evil that they had planned against you? What if God wants to use your suffering to deepen your own fellowship with Christ and to draw that person to forgiveness in Christ because you keep leaning into them in love even when they start to fear your retribution? Joseph understood that God uses suffering to save others. Shouldn't we expect God to use our suffering to do the same? Joseph did not downplay. He did not dismiss his brother's sin against him. He was honest about it. He called it evil, but he also forgave them for it. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He forgave them because he was convinced of God's sovereign ability to bring good out of it. And Joseph himself was the instrument that God used to bring that good about. We know that Jesus is the ultimate instrument that God used to bring about the ultimate good. But we also need to know that Jesus isn't the only instrument that God uses to extend his grace to others. He uses us recipients of his grace in Christ to be instruments of his grace to others by pointing them not to ourselves but to Jesus. But maybe God wants to use our suffering. Maybe God wants to use our suffering as the occasion through which he brings others to salvation in Jesus. Our suffering is not the source of their salvation. Christ is. Right? We know that. But our suffering may be the occasion through which God saves them. Are you willing to investigate that? Are you willing to pray that God would use it in that way? Joseph pointed his brothers to God's good work of salvation. Shouldn't we point then those who have wronged us to the same thing that we got when we didn't deserve it? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good. That word good here at the end of Genesis ought to take us back to the very beginning of Genesis when when God created the heavens and the earth and everything in the earth and including man and woman in his own image. Genesis 131, God saw all that he made and it was very what? Good. Indeed. Good. Same word. The serpent planned evil against God by deceiving the woman and tempting her to doubt God's goodness. And then she and the man who were created in God's good image rebelled against God's good command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of what? Good and evil. And from that point on, evil plans became pervasive throughout human history. We saw it all throughout Genesis. And sometimes God judged it severely and sometimes God was patient and kept going and waiting. But before God created the universe and called it good, he created the plan of redemption, and it was good indeed. Listen to 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Here it is, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. When we started Genesis at the beginning, that wasn't actually the beginning. Yeah, it was for us. That's when time started. But God is is always. He never wasn't. Paul keeps going. This This has now been made evident. 
It was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and has brought life and immortality to, the, to light through the gospel. What was introduced in the garden after the rebellion? Death. All of it's pointing to Jesus. The gospel is appropriately called good news, is it not? It's good. No one is in the place of God, and no plan is in the place of God's plan. The serpent didn't stand a chance because the serpent crusher that God promised to send after the rebellion in the garden already eternally existed before the serpent and the garden ever existed. Before the triune God brought about the creation, he had already determined the course of our redemption. The Father decreed it, the Son would carry it out in the power of the Holy Spirit. The all-knowing God already knew every evil plan that would ever be concocted. And so before he created everything, according to his own good purpose, his own good grace, God had already sovereignly determined the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, and the how across all of time and space so that he could make his faithful love known to people who deserve his righteous retribution. Who, can, who else can write a story like that? Joseph didn't know the full extent of God's plan of redemption. He, didn't, he couldn't see far into the future like we get to look back and, and make these connections. But he was still convinced that only a sovereign God could take evil and work it for good in order to save many people. And his reliance upon God's faithfulness, upon God's love and God's sovereign plan was evident in Joseph's life to the very end. Let's finish it out. Verse 22. Joseph and his father's family remained in Egypt Joseph lived 110 years. He saw Ephraim's sons to the third generation. The sons of Manasseh's son, uh, Machir, were recognized by Joseph. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. Joseph died at the age of 110 they embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. The section is bookended by two similar statements. One, Joseph lived 110 years, and then Joseph died at the age of 110. Two, two ways to say that, right? Joseph lived the ideal lifespan, actually, according to Egyptians. 110 years was the ideal lifespan, according to them. But the reality is he still died. He ended up in a coffin in Egypt, Right? The curse of death from the sinful rebellion in the garden at the beginning of Genesis, we see has now reached Joseph at the end of Genesis. And even though he lived 110 years, he still died at the age of 110. Still died. But look at the good that he was able to see even at the end of his life. He saw God's faithfulness to carry on his family line through Ephraim and Manasseh to the third generation. Great-grandchildren. You know what that reminds us of? God hasn't forgotten his covenant promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to multiply their offspring. It keeps going. And even though Joseph wouldn't see the land of Canaan again, he was confident that God would come to their aid. That he wouldn't leave the people of, in Egypt forever because God hadn't forgotten his covenant promise, again, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to give them the land for their descendants. Offspring, land, right? These are God's covenant promises. Joseph was so confident that God would keep his promise that he said it twice. 
Certainly God will come to your aid. When God comes to your aid, there's no ifs, there's no maybes, there's only absolutelys here. You remember what Joseph said to Pharaoh back in chapter 41 when Pharaoh had two dreams that were similar? He said, since the dream was given twice to Pharaoh, it means that the matter has been determined by God and he will carry it out soon. Don't you hear those words when we echoed as we read and hear Joseph's words repeated twice? When God comes to your aid, certainly God will come to your aid. As we're reading that, we need to think because it was given to him twice. Certainly God will carry it out. It's been determined by him and he will do it soon. But Genesis doesn't end with the fulfillment of that promise, does it? It ends with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. It ends with death and a sense of permanence. But Joseph himself was convinced that even the evil of death would not stop God's good plan of deliverance. He made his, the sons of Israel swear an oath to carry his bones up from Egypt when God came to their aid and brought them up from Egypt. You see in the Exodus, Moses carries them out. You see in Joshua, he gets buried in the land of Canaan. Up from here. Do you hear that in, in, in these last words? God will bring you up from here. When you get up from here, bring my bones up from here. What is that, what is that language? Like, it, it, it's resurrection language, isn't it? It's a picture of resurrection. It's a picture of hope. It's a picture of redemption. Joseph's final words in these last 12 verses in Genesis are a reminder to us that God hasn't forgotten his other covenant promise. You notice I said, offspring and land, but there was one more, right? Blessing. Offspring and land and blessing. After the sinful rebellion in the garden, God made a promise in Genesis 3.15 that one day he would send the serpent crusher through, uh, through the offspring of the woman. The serpent would crush his heel, but he would crush the serpent's head. And over the course of Genesis, we've seen that serpent crusher line continue down from Eve through Abraham and his family. And here at the end of Genesis, even though Joseph felt the serpent's sting of death, he knew that God would take what was evil and work it for good. His words are a reminder to us that God has not forgotten his serpent-crushing promise to bring about the greatest blessing, the greatest blessing from the very beginning. What humanity planned for evil, God planned for good to bring about the present result. The salvation of many people. In every act of evil we saw in Genesis, God was there faithfully working out his good purposes. In every act of selfish love we saw in Genesis, God was there patiently displaying his selfless love toward people who did not deserve it. Not once did God reward sin, but he did redeem sinners, and he continues to do that. From the very beginning, God planned to turn rebellion into redemption. And so as those who have our new beginning in Christ, may we never put ourselves in the place of God, but, but instead, let's participate in his good plan of redemption by pointing others to his faithfulness, to his love, to his goodness toward us, toward evil sinners like us and his serpent-crushing son, Jesus Christ. That is good news. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. Lord, we thank you for the gospel in Genesis. We thank you for this rich word that you've given to us in, in Scripture, that you have revealed to us the plan from the very beginning, and it leads directly to Jesus Christ.
Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember all that we've gotten in him because of all that he got for us. We love you and we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for Genesis, and we thank you that because we close this book, we don't close the book, but we get to continue on and see the wondrous mystery of God unfolded, revealing Jesus to us. For your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.